Hey everybody, it's Joe Trippy, and welcome back to That Trippy Show, where this week we have a special guest who's on the front lines of solving one of the problems Alex and I have been discussing for weeks, actually months, actually a, a lot of this year. How do we win down ballot? Um, Nicole Hobbs, co-founder of Every District, joins us to talk about this. We will be talking about impeachment at the end of uh, our conversation with Nicole. But Nicole, welcome. Thank you so much for having me on today. So Alex, where do you want to start, buddy? Well, Nicole, I think one of the things that we've been talking about, as Joe mentioned, is how we're supposed to win some of these races in, in some states that basically on the state and local level that Democrats have pretty much been ignoring. There have been a couple of groups that have been doing great work. Obviously, every district is one of them. But talk to me about kind of what you guys are doing and, and, and what you're trying to do. Definitely. We started every district in 2017 uh, because there were a group of us that following the 2016 election, wanted to get involved to do something. And we went looking for an organization that could tell us a little bit more about what was happening in Virginia in 2017, and particularly what was happening with Virginia's legislative elections. Uh, I've previously worked on state legislative campaigns uh, and really enjoyed working at the local level. Uh, as did the other co-founders of every district. The problem that we encountered was that there really wasn't anyone at that point in time who was putting out a lot of information about state legislative districts, you know, in the way that it's really easy to find information about the partisan competitiveness of congressional districts that didn't exist at the state legislative level four years ago. Uh, and that's something that the Every District team has built subsequently uh, to help folks better understand the competitive state legislative landscape and how we can invest strategically in races. The other challenge we had was that Democrats just weren't paying attention, as you said. Uh, they weren't investing in state legislative candidates. They weren't recruiting state legislative candidates. And it was a massive challenge for us. What I'm glad about over the past four years is that has started to change. Uh, candidate recruitment was so much better in 2020. We really fielded quality candidates in competitive state legislative districts in a broad variety of states across the country. Uh, and we saw much more investment in state legislative races than we had in any previous year in recent history. We had candidates in competitive districts who raised half a million dollars or more, which I never thought we'd see in you know, four short years. The challenge before us is really, how do we keep people engaged and how do we win? Which despite the investment that we saw in 2020, we really don't have a lot of wins to show for it, unfortunately. So something that we're looking at critically is what more can we do at every district to not just invest in candidates, but really invest in districts? And how can we also help to fill some of the data gaps that we see at the state legislative level that makes it really hard for candidates to organize in districts that fundamentally lean Republican? Well, that's part of the whole problem here is starting from literally starting from little scratch within the party four years ago. I mean, this is something we've been talking about. 
the 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 Democratic Party's focus has been completely on federal races, mostly presidential, senatorial, uh, and, you know, and target uh, House races. Um, whereas the Republicans got how important legislative races are like two decades ago. So they've got two decade head start on all this, the data, the, uh, the fielding of candidates, the recruitment of candidates, and they get uh, how important it is because every 10 years, it's the legislatures for the most part in most states that redraw the, the lines uh, for those house races <laughs> that we've been fighting over. Um, and they start off with a huge head start. Uh, you know, in some of these states that are going to gain seats, like Texas uh, is going to gain probably three congressional seats, it's two Republican state houses that will be drawing those lines. And that's, you know, again, you and Eric Holder and some other folks, there are a lot of different groups uh, started to deal with this, uh, you ahead of most, but it's really imperative. That's one of the reasons we wanted to have you on was to start to, to do what we all could do to start focusing the grassroots and our listeners and people on how important these legislative districts, every legislative district, we've got to start to mobilize. Uh, and that's the other problem. Uh, we have, you know, Senate candidates, U.S. Senate candidates who can get a lot of attention because of who they're running against, Mitch McConnell or, 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 or Lindsey Graham. We all want to stop them. We all send our 25 bucks in. But in these legislative districts, there's not only do most people not know who the Republican is, they don't know who the Democrat is and they're not focused enough on them. So how do you see things progressing? I mean, what do you what do you I mean, I'm very optimistic, given that, yet, as you said, there's starting to be more focus. But we we still need to somehow get the grassroots um, committed to 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 uh, helping us compete in every legislative district that we can feel to quality candidate. And then those candidates also have to, the other thing we need to, uh, I think for the grassroots to understand is in a lot of these districts, we need to uh, have candidates who reflect that district, will represent that district and not necessarily, you know, and be someone who can pull some of these uh, more moderate Republicans that we see leaving now uh, because of January 6th, leaving the Republican party. We need to be able to pull those people into the fold. Absolutely. I would say we see three fundamental pieces to this. The first is a bit of our program that we've been building over the past four years. And that was really to do what we could to tell the story of what was happening in the States. In 2020, if you went to our website and looked at our target States, we had an interactive map that you could click through see the candidates that every district had endorsed, learn a little bit more about their personal story, what motivated them to run, what issues they were highlighting as part of their campaign, and then donate directly to that candidate. We grouped candidates by states. Sometimes we grouped them around certain issues or themes. And we really saw donors respond to that um, and like the opportunity that they had to learn about candidates who otherwise it would have been really hard to find information about um, and feel empowered to give to candidates knowing that they were in a competitive district, but also being able to find candidates that they felt aligned with their values or who they felt a connection to for a particular reason. 
that's something we'll be continuing to build and expand on in 2021 and 2022. And it's something that we hope will continue to motivate folks to give to candidates if we can put that information out there so they can learn just as much about a state legislative candidate in Pennsylvania as Jamie Harrison, who's running in South Carolina. The second piece of this that we think is important is really leveling with donors and being clear about the opportunities and challenges within the map. We see this in some of the current email fundraising tactics, which are both candidate-centered and focused around you know, immediate urgency. We must act now, the sky is falling, we need your $5 to win this race. And what that doesn't do is get people excited about a long-term vision for how Democrats can really strategically and surgically advance Democratic power interests in a broad variety of states. Um, in a couple of weeks, every district is going to be launching what we call our 2040 report, which is this you know, big, broad vision. Uh, and our goal there is to really get people excited about investing in this long-term vision. The third piece of this is actually building out district-by-district district infrastructure. Uh, we talk about infrastructure as Democrats all the time. It seems like Infrastructure Week at the Trump White House, which is always talked about and never actually happens. Uh, and what we are doing at every district to do our piece of this is starting in Virginia and expanding to other states in 2022, is we are going to actually put boots on the ground, be working with candidates, um, and be focusing our resources and attention on the critical state legislative districts that we have to win to build legislative majorities. Uh, and part of that is really understanding what voters in those communities care about. Because really the fundamental problem that we have with Democrats right now is the mismatch between our coalition and our state-based geography. We did a lot in 2019 and 2020 to study what competitive state legislative districts looked like. Um, and they look very different from the Democratic coalition. And so I think we have to be clear-eyed about who we have to win in order to win certain districts and really go in and specifically be organizing those communities and be laser focused on reaching out to those voters, understanding their concerns, and then turning that into messaging that will resonate with those voters and get them to turn out and vote for the Democratic state legislative candidate. Yeah, well, we saw we saw that a, a little bit in some, you know, like Connor Lamb uh, in Pennsylvania uh, fits that district. He may not be the progressive that everybody wants, uh, uh, or that a lot of the Democratic coalition would want, but it's it's pretty important in terms of the majority we now hold uh, in in the House. So the, the other thing I want to do is uh, apologize for number two uh, and my role in creating the email urgency stuff. Uh, in the Dean campaign, it seemed like a really good idea, but, but I ask for forgiveness for all our listeners who get those things. Uh, and I do, and I, I've been really aware of the problem because the, those urgent messages and the skies falling and progressive uh, hot buttons that get people to give uh, are not necessarily conducive to what we need to do as a party 
to build at the local level and build up. It's one of the reasons we don't have, uh, in some places, we don't have much of a bench even uh, because they have all these legislative seats. Uh, it's hard to move a state or a district just gradually over to thinking that Democrats aren't evil or something if, uh, if there are none. <laughs> And, and it's the national messaging of the Republican Party that, that then demonizes anybody who does run locally as a, as a Democrat for legislative seat, puts them uh, again behind, uh, you know, struggling against a, a, a strong headwind. Um, what do, are you saying, because I'm not yet, uh, but I am worried about it, is sort of activist fatigue, you know, after this, you know, the massive push in November I'm not seeing it. I'm seeing at least not at the national level, but in the at these legislative district level. Are, are you seeing any fatigue in the people that are that have been following you or become part of uh, of what you put together? At, at we're seeing district? a lot of people who are really excited about the work that we're doing this year, Good. which is great. Um, you know, we've also done a lot of work in Virginia the past two years, and so I think the every district community really understands what's at stake. Virginia is a bright spot in the state legislative landscape in that it's a state that we've actually flipped blue in the past four years. Uh, and Virginia has really shown what democratic leadership at the state legislative level can mean, uh, having seen what legislation has been passed uh, in recent sessions. Uh, so I know our folks are excited about making sure that we protect the incumbents that we've elected the past few years. Um, and also doing what we can to make investments in some targeted flip opportunities that we came really close to in 2019, uh, but weren't able to get across the finish line. Are there any races now that you're involved in that are coming up or that you're already looking at in 2022 and beyond? Right now in Virginia, we haven't made any endorsements yet. Uh, part of that is that we are waiting to see what happens with redistricting, which is very up in the air at the moment, uh, given the census and how poorly that was administered uh, and how you know hard it is to kind of figure out when uh, we might have the data that Virginia would need to be able to do redistricting. Uh, but we are certainly keeping a close eye on the incumbents who have flipped districts since uh, 2017. Uh, every district has worked with the majority of them, and we expect that Republicans will closely contest all of those seats this year. What's your view? I, I think there's a, a, a special election in the state Senate in Virginia. Uh, what, do you, what Have you looked at that race at all? Is it, I know we won two House uh, delegate specials uh, a, a month or so ago. Uh, what, what's your view on, on that? And I know you haven't endorsed, as you said, mm -hmm. but I'm just uh, interested in your thinking. Mm -hmm. That state Senate race that's coming up uh, definitely has a bit of a more Republican lean uh, than the other two House specials that we saw earlier in the year. Um, definitely, you know, worth investing. Um, you know, we've got a good candidate and that was a district where I, I might be wrong, but I, I don't actually know if we fielded a candidate in 2019 there. Um, so, you know, this is really important that we have candidates who are showing up uh, in places where we don't always have candidates, uh, but definitely more of a Republican lean in that district. The two uh, districts that had House specials uh, a couple weeks ago, those had 
uh, fairly strong Democratic leans, uh, but one of them, which was actually very competitive and only decided by a couple hundred votes, uh, was a seat that had flipped in 2017. And that's definitely one that we are keeping a close eye on as we look toward November. Yeah, we we urged uh, our listeners to, to to try to help in that uh, uh, state senate special but again on the theory that look uh, we've got a good candidate uh, we did uh, win those two special house delegate races and in, it helps to build the organization in that in that district when you field a good candidate you have a good message um, and so it's worth investing uh, we'll it, we'll leave that in uh, uh, how to do that again in our show notes. Uh, at the end of this, but uh, uh, your point well taken that uh, it's a little bit more of an uphill battle there. So, Nicole, a few minutes ago, you mentioned something about 2040, and I think we're all really nervous right now about redistricting for good reason. It looks like the Democrats are going to take kind of a big hit. But the other thing that I, I think you guys might be the only people I've ever heard talk about it is the idea that population shift is really going to be a problem for Democrats on the federal level in the next 10, 15 years, too. Uh, What do you see going on there and how can we do something about it? The first section of our 2040 report looks at the Senate, which really means looking at states. We see some not so great trends for Democrats moving forward. Uh, What we actually do is we model different scenarios for Senate control over the next 20 years. Of course, anyone who's lived through 2020 knows how difficult it can be to predict elections. Uh, But our goal here is really to give folks an understanding of the baseline that we're potentially working with over the next 20 years. What we find is that in the majority of scenarios, Democrats don't even really get to 50 seats. Uh, And the problem that we have is that even though Joe Biden was able to rebuild a little bit of the blue wall this year, if you look at how statewide elections have trended in those states since 2008, we've continued to, when we do win, win by narrower and narrower margins. Uh, And then you have you know, folks who are rightly so focusing on the Sun Belt. Um, And we saw Georgia, uh, you know, flip blue this year, which was very exciting. But when we actually model this out, what we see is the Rust Belt slipping away from us much more quickly than we are able to make gains in the Sun Belt. Uh, And so what we're hoping by putting this out there is that folks will really start to think about what the national map looks like, where we need to think long term, and not just have us, you know, poke our heads up at the beginning of 2020 and say, what does the 2022 Senate map look like and where would it be nice to win? We really need to be thinking much more long term uh, to say, if we don't win this seat now, what does that mean, you know, six, 12, 15 years down the road? Yeah, we, we've talked about that. I mean, the, the fact that, you know, Idaho has two seats, Senate seats, and California has two Senate seats, and you start playing that out across the map. That's why we're, we've got 51 with, with Kamala Harris right now, and that map isn't changing. They can't change the state borders. So either we uh, become more competitive uh, in places that we largely avoid because, well, we can't win that seat. 
you know, and and recognize that whether progressives love Joe Manchin or not, it, you can at least negotiate and find some middle ground with Joe Manchin. That's not going to happen with a, a a Trump Republican senator from West Virginia, and so th- those realities are very tough for a, a lot of uh, progressives that have you know are, are hungry to to make the kind of principal changes that they want want to make and not, do not think. Uh, necessarily, you know, it's it's that urgency thing, need to do it now. But there's also the reality of both the electoral college that's going to get worse too, because as uh, these Republicans redraw the lines, if California loses House seats and they and one of them goes to Montana, that's much tougher ground. And also that changes the electoral college vote. It's It's how many senators and members of Congress the state has is their electoral vote. So Montana's electoral college vote goes up. California's goes down. Doesn't take, you don't have to really think this through if you realize that New York and California are losing house seats because we didn't, we didn't win the Texas legislature. I know a lot of people put a lot of work into that, but uh, it didn't, it didn't pan out again, because you're starting from scratch where the Republicans have been building organizationally and message wise for, for decades at the legislative level. So uh, I, I think these are that's one of the reasons we wanted you on so that we could at least just air all this uh, for people to hear and to think about as we move forward as a party. Uh, we've got to take the same disciplined, long-term organizational uh, fight in these legislative districts that, that the Republicans have already had for, for decades, uh, that we're just starting uh, over the last four years to build that infrastructure. You're an important part of that. Uh, but that, that all of us writ large have to start to think this way, that this is important, that it's not just the House. And the, I mean, actually, the House is really dependent on the legislative uh, seats, the electoral colleges. And so there are big implications, not just at the state legislative uh, level in terms of winning those legislatures, but the implications it, it has on the things that we've been worried about all this time, the House majority, the the election of the president with the Electoral College, uh, when we, we're con- going to continue to win the popular vote, uh, Republicans haven't won the national popular vote but once in like, you know, uh, over a decade. Uh, but it, that doesn't, they've, they've actually elected more presidents than we have uh, during that period because of the Electoral College, or at least more than they should have <laughs> because of the Electoral College. So, you know, I think how how much of your focus is how do you divide up, you know, your the the near term focus of, you know, this year in 2022 and and still be moving in other districts or states in your 2040, you know, looking at the long, long haul. How do you how are you uh, managing to, to to both those those things, the urgent one now and and, the, and putting the long-term focus that we need to have. Absolutely. We see them as intertwined in the sense that as demographic groups have started to vote much more as a block than we've seen uh, in you know, previous election history, there are opportunities for us to start engaging with key communities this year in Virginia, uh, you know, start to do that organizing and be able to take what we learn uh, from working within those communities 
to other states in 2022 and beyond. Uh, so starting this year in Virginia, we'll be doing work with campaigns to help them uh, really start uh, you know, doing voter contact in districts that just really haven't seen investment in cycles uh, in the past. And then we'll be continuing to build that out to other states. And I think what's unique about the state legislative landscape is that the challenges that we face there, given the ways that Republicans have drawn the lines, mirror a lot of the larger demographic challenges that we're seeing uh, on a state-by-state -state basis, given the way our state lines have been drawn um, and how that affects the Senate and the Electoral College and governorships. And so something I think we need to have much more of a focus on as a party is really thinking about the groups that are key to continue winning uh, and groups where we, you know, maybe used to win and have started to slip a little bit in terms of the percentage that we win those groups by and really figure out what those voters care about, what motivates them to vote and then use that to develop messaging specific to those populations. Of course, you won't be able to take a Virginia-specific message and put that in Montana, uh, but we can start to learn lessons that can be applied in other states and really start to build out the organizing capabilities that will allow us to show up year after year in these communities and be able to make progress. And if you're winning these purple state legislative districts, which is the work that we're going to be doing, um, if you're winning in those districts, you're winning statewide. Uh, and that's really where we see our work fitting into the larger picture of how Democrats grow um, a pot, you know, a, a much larger state-based uh, progressive coalition is investing in these key communities and that will have effects up and down the ballot. Nicole, that's that's great. We really appreciate all the work you're doing. And how can our listeners best support what you're doing? The first thing you can do is go to our website, everydistrict.us. Uh, and if you're excited by our vision for how we can continue to grow democratic power in the states, uh, you can support us financially with a contribution. You can sign up for our email list to learn more about our work and be the first to know when our 2040 report launches in a couple of weeks. Uh, and also know uh, as soon as we start making endorsements this year in Virginia and in other battleground states in 2022. Great. Thanks, Nicole, for coming on and check out her work and uh, what they're doing at everydistrict.us uh, and really appreciate you coming on. Thanks, Nicole. Thank you. Alex, the Democrats made a moving case for impeachment uh, on the facts with a motion and rested Thursday. Republicans, of course, are doing everything they can, or most of them seem to be, uh, to literally ignore the case the Democrats are making. And by that, I mean Republicans in the Senate. We are seeing movement in the electorate, uh, uh, you know, literally uh, a big majority is for uh, conviction now. And I don't, I think that's probably going to, going to, going to grow, but uh, let's talk about that for a second. What's on your mind? Well, two things. One, I think the, the first reaction was, was Lindsey Graham. And I think you kind of just take the opposite of what he said, but he said something like that made it more likely that that they're going to acquit. So clearly not everybody on the GOP side was moved and, and clearly momentum is towards that. 
But one thing that I think you had, you had been saying before this and why the trial was so important was this really shone a national spotlight on all the images of what happened on the 6th. That I thought they did a really good job of telling the story and weaving together some of the really violent images and kind of showing a really clear trail. Well, there's two juries. There's the there's the one in the Senate, obviously, but the other jury out there is the American people, and uh, clearly they're making a case that's uh, hitting the American people and moving them more towards the view that uh, that Trump should be disqualified, impeached, and disqualified from running again. I do think. Look, there's. I'm not uh, giving up on the Senate yet. Uh, that may be Pollyannish, uh, but there are three groups that I would. Uh, look at people like Shelby in Alabama, uh, senators who have uh, there's four of them that have announced they're retiring and will not be up again. What do they end up doing? And I'm sure um, that we can uh, that, 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 that maybe all of them will will vote uh, to acquit. But that's a group, I think, that, that could be moved by this over time. And when they see the reaction of, of uh, uh, and understand now of uh, the full dynamic that was in work at work uh, way before January 6th. The other group, I think, are more reflective of Cassidy uh, from Louisiana, people who, senators in the Republican Party who just won and will not face these voters for six years. Uh, what do they do? Are they movable at all? Uh, Cassidy moving, even on that one vote, uh, is significant, but does that mean there's any more hope uh, for others in that group. And then the other group that's I think is going to be interesting to watch their votes are the Republicans in the Senate who are ambitious and want to run for the presidency in 2024 and know full well uh, how tough that will be if Donald Trump is a, a candidate. Do they do what did they do? Uh, in this moment. Again, a lot of what's happening in the Senate right now on the Republican side is all about self-preservation. I'm up in two years. I can't cross Donald Trump. I'm not running again ever. And this is a constitutional, this is about the future of the party. Am I going to continue to toe the line here or am I going to move? I ran just now. I'm not up for six years. I can take my lumps then. I've got six years to 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 overcome and to prove that I was right when I changed my when I moved uh, against Trump. And then there's that group, like I said, who have to be and this this is like the Rubios of the world, but but people in the Senate who are clearly still running for president of the United States. And do they start to calculate uh, as a politician that that the best thing may be for Trump to be disqualified and to have a clear field for them to run through um, well, in 2024. I mean, if you're Rubio is a really interesting case, and I really never want to say that phrase again, by the way, but he's an interesting we case. Have you on, where... We have you We're recording this, you know, I just want you to you know, record. He's got, he's never going to be able to out kind of flank Holly and Cruz to get the Trump base, right. right? So he's in a really interesting predicament. Like, because obviously he's ambitious, but I just don't, man, you're more optimistic than I am. No, no. It's the question is, what's what's that calculus? It's all this is all politics. All the votes in the U.S. Senate on the Republican side are clearly about political self-preservation. And so at some point, 
what is his calculus? I don't, not pretending to know what's going on in any of their minds. Uh, that would be, so, you know, uh, way beyond uh, my... Just bang uh, your head my, into the desk a couple yeah, times. Yeah, my predictive skills. Uh, but I do think those three groups are the groups, the people I would, the senators I would be, be watching. I don't think any of the 2022 uh, uh, folks that face an election in 2022 are, are their, their self-preservation vote is clear, uh, side with Trump, ignore all of this, uh, and, uh, and, and just, you know, uh, uh, get it over with fast. I think the other three groups, I'm not saying there's 16 votes there, uh, beyond Cassidy, uh, but do, you know, four or five of them break loose, uh, do none of them. Uh, those are the three groups that I think are going to be interesting to watch as this vote, uh, as this trial comes to a conclusion and they finally have to to vote. The, the, the best part is they'll all be on the record. We're finally going to know who, who did what, who stood with the Constitution, who's going to go down in history uh, as enabling this stuff and continuing, to, along with the 139 that after the insurrection voted to overturn, voted not to certify the Electoral College um, vote. The, 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 these are the people, the people who vote against this impeachment and the people who voted to over in the House who overturned and the Senate who voted to overturn uh, the the certified election or not certify the election results, those are folks we're going to have to remember for a long time and work like crazy to make sure uh, that they're not uh, reelected. So this is one of the things that I've noticed about maybe just this impeachment trial or really since he's left the presidency. I feel like since he got kicked off of Twitter, it's almost like he's been real quiet. And I don't know if it's just because I don't watch cable news all that much, but I feel like his whole strategy this time around, it's almost like been really quiet, kind of lying low. I mean, what are you seeing? Yeah. Do you feel well, that way too? Yeah but, to, yeah, but that's a game. That's like, hey, lay low. You've got the votes. Don't make any noise. Don't screw it up. And then watch how loud he gets when he's acquitted, uh, if he's acquitted, uh, which is one of the things I think these Republicans in the Senate need to to think about. He's not going anywhere until they make sure he can't go anywhere. And that's impeaching him and disqualifying him. So, hey, Alex, I think we're out of time. Thanks for listening to that trippy show. By the way, if you have a race you want us to spotlight or a question, please submit it on iTunes in the review section or email us at thattrippyshow at gmail.com. See you next Friday. And we'll put uh, all the stuff about uh, every district in our show notes. Uh, look there uh, and help them out if you can.